Good afternoon and welcome to the 109th of the COVID calls. This, this is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, I have a discussion with historian John Barry. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube live. Just go to the COVID calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for guests and future topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, August 20th, there are 22,504,386 confirmed cases globally of COVID-19, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. That's up from 22,233,473 cases yesterday. Of those, 5,553,164 are in the United States. That's up from 5,512,166 cases reported yesterday. There are now a total of 173,699 deaths from COVID-19 reported in the United States. That's up from 172,564 reported yesterday, another day with more than 1,000 deaths from day to day. As a way to bring humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic. I'd like to continue that now with two obituaries. Headline, Jane Jordan, 78, was a history teacher who wanted to be an archeologist. This is by Gary Miles. It was published July 11th in the Philadelphia Inquirer. It happened so often when the Jordan family was out together that it became a running joke among the three children. No matter where they were, someone invariably would approach their mother and exclaim, Mrs. Jordan, you taught me at Germantown and the kids would roll their eyes. Here we go again. They were everywhere, Natalie Jordan, Mrs. Jordan's middle child said about her mother's former students, but she would be over the moon each time that they remembered her. That was one of my students, she would say. It humbled her. Mrs. Jordan, 78, died June 12th from COVID-19 at Abington Hospital. She had been ill with the virus for about 17 days. Born at home in Germantown in 1941, the young Mrs. Jordan liked to ride around town with her older sister, Kermit, in the front seat of his car, with her older brother, Kermit, in the front seat of his car. She graduated from Germantown High and wanted to be an archaeologist. Instead, she joined the Alpha Kappa Alpha sorority, graduated from Cheney State Teachers College, now Cheney University, in 1964, and became a history teacher. In those days, Women became secretaries, teachers, or nurses, Natalie Jordan said. She loved history and architecture, so she became a teacher. After working briefly at an elementary school, Mrs. Jordan returned to her alma mater and spent the bulk of her career teaching history at Germantown. Natalie graded papers with her mother on the weekend and received impromptu history lessons on what happened there and how that was built during family car rides. Mrs. Jordan was especially interested in the history of women, African-Americans, and Philadelphia. She had met Abraham Jordan on a double date, and they married in July of 1966. They set up house in West Mount Airy and raised daughters Regina and Natalie and son Blair. Being her only son, Blair was her heart, Natalie said. During their nearly 54-year marriage, Mrs. Jordan and her husband traveled to South Africa and Mexico and across the country on a train. 
Their next destination was to be Cuba. The couple moved to Winmore in 2000. Kind and gracious is how everybody described her, Natalie Jordan said of her mother, even when she wasn't feeling well. When she got older, she always smiled. In addition to her husband and children, Mrs. Jordan is survived by five grandchildren. I'm gonna read one more obituary today. Headline, Forgo North teacher who died from COVID-19 remembered for inspiring students. This is by Kevin Wallavand and was published on May 11th. A longtime Fargo history teacher who died from COVID-19 amid his battle with Alzheimer's disease is being remembered for inspiring students with his passionate teaching style. Richard R.D. Olson engaged Fargo North high school students for decades with his wit and deep knowledge of the subject he taught his colleagues, family, and students say. He was not a textbook teacher. You simply read that in addition to the things he talked about, said longtime teacher and coach Gary Malou who taught alongside Olson and still coaches cross country at Fargo North. Since his family announced his May 4th death, condolences and words of admiration have flooded in for Olson, who taught at Fargo North from the 1960s to the 1980s. Many are from students he inspired over the decades. Mr. Olson was without question, the best, most passionate, interesting and knowledgeable teacher I ever had, wrote one former student on an online funeral guest book. He created in me a love of history, stimulated and encouraged creative thinking and led me to pursue my degree in history and political science, the student continued. I will never forget his wit, his smile, and his utter joy and excitement as he kept the past alive. Family members, including Olson's son, Chris, appreciate the kind words. He had all these kids, he said. We were his kids, but he had these thousands of other kids. Obviously, he went beyond what most of us can do. Richard R.D. Olson was known for his love of old cars. He also loved to make people laugh, which students and family members now fondly recall. He was a memorable person, Chris said of his father. He had the gift of gab and sense of humor and was one of the funniest people you could meet. Chris says the irony of his father's passing is that it came during such a historic time, a pandemic. He would have found it fascinating, Chris said. For someone who was a master of history for so long, to lose the ability to understand the change over time was hard to watch. Olson's family hopes to have a memorial service in Fargo once coronavirus restrictions are relaxed. The video from his private family service is on the Bolger Funeral Home website. Olson was 90. I'm gonna to turn to my guest today, and I'm just really excited to speak with John Barry. John M. Barry is a prize-winning New York Times bestselling author whose books have won multiple awards. The National Academies of Sciences named his 2004 book, The Great Influenza, the story of the deadliest pandemic in history, a study of the 1918 pandemic, the year's outstanding book on science or medicine. His earlier book, Rising Tide, The Great Mississippi Flood of 1927 and How It Changed America, won the Francis Parkman Prize of the Society of American Historians the year's best book of American history. And in 2005, the New York Public Library named it one of the 50 best books in the preceding 50 years, including fiction, nonfiction, and poetry. In 2006, he became the only non-scientist ever to give the National Academy's Abel Woolman Distinguished Lecture, a lecture which honors contributions to water-related science. And he was the only non-scientist on a federal government infectious disease board of experts. His latest book is Roger Williams and the Creation of the American Soul, Church, State, and the Birth of Liberty, a finalist for the Los Angeles Times Book Prize and winner of the New England Society Book Award. 
There's much more to say about his career, and you can check it out on his website. John Barry, thank you so much for joining me today on COVID Calls. Well, thank you for, for having me on. And uh, just as a note to the viewers, I have a lousy internet connection. So as I'm monitoring the bars, if I disappear from the video, that's, that's because the connection's gotten weaker and I serve audience. Okay, that's that's good. We can cope with that. Thanks, John. So let me invite people to get your questions in for John Barry. You can just put them into the YouTube live chat or you can put them up on Twitter, just tag at US of Disaster. John, I'll, I'll start the way I've started all these calls, just asking you where you're calling from and what the COVID-19 situation is like there this time. I'm actually at the moment in DC. I got here uh, stay night from New Orleans where I live and uh, walking around, I've been rather stunned by the compliance with masking here in Washington compared to uh, uh, New Orleans where it is required, but uh, it's actually gotten a lot better down there, but it, nothing like what it seems to be right here. And you made that, you made that trip, did you drive? I did, and uh, a little bit nervous staying in a, in a hotel, particularly going to the elevator. But I wasn't going to sleep in the car, so. Right. It's been interesting to speak with guests over the last few weeks who are traveling again. And and what you just said, you described that sort of fear. If you've, if you've made a safe space for yourself in one place, to abandon that and go to another place is pretty nerve-wracking. Yeah, can be. So I want to just read um, a quick quote as we get started. We're going to start in the present, but work to the past since um, you're a historian and you can speak to both times. So I just want to give a quick quote from your piece that appeared in the New York Times two days ago. You said, President Trump has either largely dismissed or ignored his science and medical advisors. The result is that the economy, the one thing he seems to care most about and which he hoped would escort him to a second term has been devastated. As both history and data from today demonstrate, health and the economy are not antagonistic. They are dance partners with public health taking the lead. The safer people, the more they will engage in economic activity. Uh, couldn't have been more timely, particularly in the middle of the convention. So what can we be doing right now to slow the spread and to avoid the economic catastrophe that seems to be brewing? Well, I think we, that I had that hasn't already been said many dozens of times, uh, hundreds of times that your audience has certainly heard before. Number one, most important, more important than anything else, social distancing. Uh, then comes masks, hand washings, and, you know, staying away from crowds. Obviously, that's part of social distancing, a subset. Uh, you know, there there might be some uh, some minor things. Yeah, I'm gargo with uh, one and a half percent hydrogen peroxide uh, for for about a minute. That that might help. I used to do that. Although, frankly, honestly, I've kind of let that slide as things came a little bit better uh, in the early days of the pandemic when you know we were it was really pretty frightening. 
because nobody knew anything really about the transmission. I would actually do that. Um, other than that, there are no secrets. It's it's pretty simple. The stuff works if if people do it. So compliance is everything. So if we were to be able to do that across the country, is it is it too late to avoid the kind of economic damage that we're that we're seeing right now, or is there still some some possibility well, no, to stem we, that? We could, you know, do a lot better than we are doing. And I think if people feel safe, uh, then the economy will come back. I mean, that that op-ed went on to uh, cite data from a uh, study by a Federal Reserve Board member, uh, Fed staff economist, and an MIT economist that looked at 1918, uh, went beyond what I did in my book, and discovered that the cities that stayed, you know, had more stringent regulations and enforced them over a longer period of time, actually had better economic recoveries than cities that did not. In a, in, other studies had also demonstrated that they had lower mortality. Uh, then there was another study by University of Chicago, the op-eds uh, that looked at cases uh, that were on state borders where their same metropolitan area, uh, but one state had more stringent government regulation than other state. Uh, Seven seven percent of the economic collapse because of the pandemic. The rest was behavior. Look at Europe uh, and the they're doing compared to ours. Uh, you know the base and ours is over ten percent. Their restaurants are actually doing better right now. They're doing more business than they did at the same time last year in Germany, according to open table data. Whereas our restaurants are still in the tank, um, down more than 50% uh, year over year. And that's because the consumers have confidence in Germany that they're safe. And we don't. So, you want to fix the economy, which was the whole point of the, the op-ed, then and get the virus under control. If we had started out with that approach, we'd be in the place that Europe's in. And, you know, we wouldn't, uh, I've written six op-eds, you know, basically one a month. Uh, I think the last one I was comparing Florida to, to Italy. Italy, 60 million people had was having fewer than 200 cases a day. This is at a time when Florida, they have come down some, but they were averaging over 10,000 cases a day. You know, if Florida had the number of cases that Italy had on a per capita basis, or hell, even if they had 200 cases compared to 15,000, even forget about the per capita basis, then they wouldn't be talking about whether or not to open schools. Schools would be open, mm -hmm. debate. You get the community transmission down, you open the schools. So again, it comes down to compliance and, and uh, taking it seriously. The idea that public health could possibly have been politicized was something that no one 
no one in the public health community could have did anticipate or frankly could have anticipated. You know, you think on the edges, there are decisions that that political leadership might make that could affect things, but you wouldn't think right at the basic fundamental level that, that a virus that so far has killed 170,000 people in the United States, that that could have been trivialized. Anyway. Yeah, you, I just want to, uh, another piece you wrote back in July, you had this amazing turn of phrase. You said, when you mix science and politics, you get politics. Um, and I want I just want to see if you can expand a little bit on that, you know, that, I mean, we can talk about Trump and that's fine, but, but it seems to go much deeper. Um, the degree to which we have found ourselves in the middle of a science war in the middle of a pandemic. Um, you're, you're surprised by that? I mean, we've had climate denial for a while and anti-vaccination and plenty of debate throughout American history about science and the role of science. But what you were just saying, it seems like it's even surprised you a little bit this time at how angry it's been and how divisive and how deadly this divide has been. I think we're frozen, John. So maybe, oh, looks like we have momentarily lost John Barry, who I expect will come back to us. As he said, he has just moved into his uh, place in DC and getting the internet worked out at this time. So I expect he will rejoin me in any minute. Just, I will uh, say a little bit more about that July 14th New York Times op-ed that he published, and you can check that out. Uh, he said, when you mix science and politics, you get politics. With the coronavirus, the United States has proved politics hasn't worked. If we are to fully reopen both the economy and schools safely, which can be done, we have to return to science. You can see the theme emerging here and, and I've got you back, John. Do you want to go off camera just to see if we get a slightly no, better? I switched to my uh, mobile hotspot on my phone, which actually should be okay. Uh, supposedly we okay. had somebody in today working on the internet. On I uh, supposedly fixed it, but uh, apparently not. So I started to say, okay. you know, right. I do, you know, I appreciate your comment on that line. But as I said, the first time I used it was to talk about my most recent book, which is frankly quite a while ago, still 2012, about Roger Williams, when I said, when you mix religion and politics, you get politics. The truth is when you mix anything in politics, you get politics. So you're not surprised then the degree to which, or I guess, uh, what has been surprising to you in these last few months about about the way the administration has has reacted were you expecting at oh, some point that there'd be no, no, a greater I, deference I'm to astounded. science i'm astounded you know uh any hmm. although i'm an historian i'm sort of in the public health community I, you know as i guess you know uh after the 
influenza book came out, I got involved in pandemic preparedness planning, you know, right at the beginning and conceptualizing non-pharmaceutical interventions and so forth. Um, everybody's been astounded. You're not surprised that politics gets into it somewhere. But, you know, Trump, Trump had the opportunity of guaranteeing his reelection. This is the crazy part of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. That had he done a great job or a decent job, you know, his approval would be much higher than it is. The only time in his presidency he cracked 50% approval is when he, right after he said, we're at war with the virus. And if he had taken it seriously and done what needed to be done, you know, again, Merkel in, in, in Europe, in Germany, she, she had 77% approval and she, her, her ratings were in, in the tank before this. So it was in his self-interest, but he couldn't see it. Uh, you know, and, it, and again, it was in his self-interest to get it under control, not only in terms of, of life and death, but in terms of economic activity. Uh, right. So yeah, I've been astounded and so has every single person in the public health community. They just, it's incomprehensible uh, the response of the White House, or you know, saying the federal government we're a, we're a backup. Since when, on a national crisis, is the federal, the national government in any country in the world a backup? Since when is leadership a backup? Leadership is out front taking care of the problems. It's it's crazy, and is again it's craziest because it was in his own self interest politically as well as the nation's interest if he had addressed this in a, in a different manner. So yeah, I'm su- not only surprised, but astounded. What you might expect in a situation like that though, with a bureaucracy as vast and, and skilled and expert as ours is, is that even if the leadership um, gets crossways with the situation that we have our NIH and our CDC and various state level, um, you know, health boards. And I mean, the, the level of expertise in this country is astounding. That has been surprising to me that it, that you could handicap the whole centers for disease control, particularly in those early, in those early months, you must know, you must, I mean, you've interacted with these folks now for going on two decades. Um, that also must be surprising what you're hearing out of, out of those agencies. Well, you know, you, the White House makes the decisions. So you you had almost two different kinds of responses. You had the White House political response, the president, Kushner, and so forth. And then you had uh, the professionals. So. So let's go back to 1918, 1919 then. And just to, I think people are probably pretty familiar now more than they've probably ever been since that time. Um, 50 to 100 million people killed around the world, equivalent of 220 to 430 million people would be today by the influenza outbreak. You studied it, you wrote about it, you've returned to it. It's it's a touchstone. um, And anybody who reads about public health and history of medicine and disasters knows that work. I think that the first thing I wanted to ask you was, was at a narrative level, 
as when you go back and you think about everything you read about that pandemic, what is what is the story? What is this, a person or a story? Like what comes first to your mind that really encapsulates the horror of that time? Well, you know, I, my focus was on, well, in fact, everything that I write, I try to write about power. Uh, and it may not seem that way to the reader, but that's the way I look at the book. And in that book, uh, I looked at people with some power to do something about, which was primarily a scientific community as it is today. Uh, so, it, you know, it wasn't the personal tragedy that grabbed me and got me interested in writing the book. The main figures in that book are the scientists. And they, they were great scientists. People yeah. don't realize how good they were. Just one example, there's a minor figure in the book. Uh, Peyton Rouse won the Nobel Prize in 1966 for work he actually did in 1911. They won't give you the prize until they know you're right. He was 55 years ahead of the curve. Uh, and I mean, these were great scientists back then. Uh, obviously, they couldn't solve the problem. Uh, so there's not a single uh, part of it, I guess, you know, maybe s some of the symptoms. Uh, people could bleed not only from uh, their nose, which actually where we have good data from Omnicams, that was in some cases 15% of the patients, but they could also bleed from their, even their, their eyes and ears, which is pretty terrifying. Uh, there's a letter in the book uh, by a, from a physician by Roy Grist writing a colleague. He's at Camp Devens, the first army camp in the U.S. that, uh, uh, that got hit by the second wave, the lethal wave of the virus. And he's describing the situation in, in the camp, and that pretty much sticks in the mind, uh, he says, uh, you know, it, that he could stand it to see one, two, or twenty men die, to see these men dropping like flies. We've been averaging about a hundred deaths per day. Pneumonia means, in about all cases, death. Uh, take special trains to carry away the dead. Had no coffins, and the bodies piled up something fierce. And he says. That, beats any site they had in France after a battle. Goodbye, old friend, God be with you until we meet again. Uh, I was pretty moved by that letter. In fact, until I just recited it pretty close to word for word now, I didn't realize that I had memorized it. I never made any attempt to memorize it. Uh, that's an indication of how much it stuck with me. Uh, that and, you know, the. But it was the struggle of the scientists and their frustration and, and what came out of it and things like that. There's a, one person, Oswald Avery, who, uh, if you get a pneumonia vaccine today, against bacteria, uh, he developed that. And it's a straight line descendant today, what you put from what he developed back in 1918. And, and Avery is probably most deserving of the Nobel Prize who never won it. Uh, he was being considered for the prize in the 40s 
uh, for his lifelong contribution to immunology. Uh, and then he's the one who discovered that DNA carries a genetic code. So they didn't give it to him. Again, they had to know that he was right before they give you the prize. And his finding that DNA carried the genetic code actually was con very controversial in a minority view at the time. Uh, so he didn't get the prize. And of course, he launched the entire field of molecular biology. Uh, but his struggles uh, during and after the pandemic were very uh, impactful on me since I had a lot of struggles writing that book, as a matter of fact. Uh, and I used to think about him, and he kind of kept me going. Hmm. That, to me, has always impressed me about the about the book, and I've been thinking about it a lot in terms of what kind of information we have access to right now. Because the whole, I mean, the whole book is is history of medicine. I mean, you're really telling it through the eyes of William Welch and Flexner and other of the important yeah. scientists at the time. And and the whole first chunk of the book. Um, you know, to me, I mean, it outlines a context that I think is often left aside, which is that my sense of people living in those days, they were really living in an age of medical wonders. I mean, vaccines had been developed for cholera, tetanus, bubonic plague, rabies, typhoid, and what medicine was in America had been transformed in the one or two decades before the Great War broke right. out. You, you write about William Welch in that. Yeah. 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 So I, I guess I wanted to ask you a little bit more stop about that. I'm going to stop my video. I just want to announce I'm stopping the video, uh, looking at the bars on the computer, but okay. I'm still here. Okay. 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 So the ghost, the just to go back. Yeah. Let's go back to that context a little bit so that, because I think it's really important to understand that medicine in America and what we call public health now um, went through really radical transformations in those last, in that last decade of the 19th century and in the years leading up to the great influenza. Um, and I guess the reason I ask that is that that seems to make it even more, it's harder, I guess, for the scientists to recognize that they've hit something that they can't master with the with the influenza. Can you speak to that a little bit? Some of that that pressure and tension that they were feeling, based in part on the success that they had had in the previous generation. Well, I mean, that's a good question. You know, most of the advances, of course, were in public health, uh, sanitation, and so forth. Uh, they had developed vaccines. Bacteriology was pretty far advanced. And uh, Robert Koch, one of the greatest uh, scientists of the 19th century, uh, his protege uh, thought, and the, the, there was a pandemic starting in 1889, his protege, Richard Pfeiffer, thought that uh, he had identified the cause of influenza, that it was a bacillus, which in fact today still has the name influenza as part of its name, Haemophilus influenza, known as H-flu for short, uh, which can be a dangerous pathogen. Uh, so in 1918, initially, there were a lot of people who believed they could develop a vaccine against this and, and save people. 
But of course, it wasn't the pathogen. Uh, in 1918, they knew that there were organisms that would pass through the smallest imaginable filter. They were, and they were referred to as, you know, filter passing organisms or viruses. But they didn't know if that was a different organism or just a really, really, really small bacteria. Uh, is it, you know, so they couldn't grow it because you have to, they were, you know, a virus isn't going to grow with food surrounding it. It has to have a living cell to grow in. So it's completely, when you culture it, it's completely different from, from bacteria. So all the targets that they were aiming at, uh, whether it was a pneumococcus for Avery, as I said earlier, he developed an, an vaccine that was effective against a pneumococcus, uh, whether it was a vaccine against H flu, these things might have done some good and, and probably did against those people who are dying of secondary bacterial infections. And probably, frankly, a majority of people in 1918 probably died not directly from the virus, uh, but from secondary infections. And even today, the case mortality for uh, a secondary bacterial pneumonia following influenza is 8%. That's today with ICUs and antibiotics and everything. Back then it was of course much worse. Um, so, you know, there, there was this, just like today, there was this mad rush from every scientist and every clinician trying to figure out something that would work. Uh, in fact, they tried plasma, which was not very effective. And if you notice, I think it was just today or yesterday, uh, the FDA would, uh, withheld emergency use authorization for plasma uh, because Tony Fauci uh, and, and uh, Francis Collins, Collins being the head of NIH, uh, said they're not so sure that it's effective. And in fact, in 1918, they expected it to be effective and they discovered that it was not particularly effective. They tried everything. There was even a physician in 1918 who gave hydrogen peroxide intravenously to his patients, thinking that it would improve the oxygenation of the blood. He gave him to 25 patients, 13 recovered, 12 died, and he declared success. You know, there's somebody else who transfused blood to six patients and four recovered and two died, and he claimed success for that. Uh, you know, they were under the pressure of trying to save lives. People were trying everything, and they didn't have time to run experiments with placebos and so forth and so on. And today we're trying everything. Today, you know, the observational studies are better. They're much more you know, uh, you know, many more people involved before you make a conclusion. That not, that first hydroxychloroquine study was much like one of those studies where you were giving hydrogen peroxide and claiming success. It was very flawed, but it actually it looked good, but it was deeply flawed, and it turned out not to hold up. But they were doing things like that in 1918 out of desperation. Remember, that virus was a lot, a lot more lethal than what we're facing today. Uh, it also killed the younger people. 
95% of the excess mortality was people under 65. So that's very different than today. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But maybe the biggest difference, or the, other than the lethality, the most important difference is duration. Influenza moves much faster than COVID-19. Uh, the incubation periods, one to four days, most people get sick at two. COVID-19 is two to 14 days. Most people get sick at five or six. So the whole thing slows down. Influenza would pass through a community, any given place in six to 10 weeks. COVID-19 is just hanging around and hanging around. Part of that is because we intervened and slowed its transmission. And that saved, you know, if we hadn't done that, we'd probably have three quarters of a million people dead right now. So certainly more than half a million. And, you know, obviously, same you, projects, yeah. okay, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, I just want to ask you about it. No, no, it's, it's, this is all just really important context. And I wanted to ask you a slightly different piece of that context and about the politics, since we were already talking about politics a little bit. And we have gotten used to, even though it hasn't worked as well as many of us would have liked, we have gotten used to seeing public health officials in front of the camera, sometimes on a daily basis this year. Um, how much did the public know? Everything you've just been describing about what the, the clinicians and what the public health officials were doing in 1918, uh, how much of that was known in that time? How much of it was was public? How much did the public actually understand of what was happening in those days? I'm talking well, about the United little. States first. I know it's close. Yeah. Uh, very little in any of the countries that were at war. And the reason was pretty much everyone who was at war, which was almost the entire developed world, not quite. Spain wasn't at war. Switzerland wasn't at war. Uh, they were, you know, they, they were afraid if they told the truth that it would interfere with the war effort, it would hurt morale and so forth and so on. Uh, and so in the U.S. national public health leaders said you have nothing to worry about if proper precautions are taken. Another national public health leader said this is ordinary influenza by another name is referred to as Spanish flu. Uh, you know, so that's similar to the trivializing of the pandemic initially today, although for very different motives. Uh, but, you know, not in, in 1918, nobody believed that trivialization because the virus was so lethal, because your neighbor could drop dead in less than 24 hours after the first symptom because every city in the country practically ran out of coffins, because coffins were actually reused funerals. You would bury someone, you know, have the service, immediate family only, bury the person, or actually after the service, remove the body from the coffin and then give it to somebody else. When things like that are happening in pretty much every city in the country, nobody thinks the virus is a hoax. Uh, so the poor messaging in 1918 simply led to really panic. Uh, and in some cases, in the worst 
cases, almost a, a dissolution of society because when you can't trust what you're being told and you're in a life and death crisis, instead of coming together, which is usually the case in a disaster, it became every person from self or herself, every family for itself, uh, to the extent that even among family members, uh, sometimes you see reports of people starving to death because nobody could be found with the courage to bring them food. And I think that was directly related, uh, frankly, to the messaging, to the fact that trust dissolved. And I think ultimately society is based on trust. Amazing too that the the media media environment of that time it, it's almost unthinkable how different it was. I mean, you wrote it in the nineteen in your in your nineteen twenty seven flood book. I mean, we, the the beginning of the sort of mass media and covering disaster as a sort of national story was still a ways off at that point. But but Woodrow Wilson himself got the influenza, right? I mean, it's, it's I still yeah. find it surprising that it people didn't have a broader sense of the scope of it, considering the president had it. Well, he didn't get it until 1919 in Paris during the peace talks. So uh -huh. it's not like he was living through it. And when, you know, the, it came in waves. The first wave was in spring of 1918, but it wasn't noticed at the time. It entirely missed, my guess is, it entirely missed most of the country. I, you know, you'd have to do really a lot of epidemiological research to prove that. You know, I did look at a few places like Los Angeles didn't have a single influenza death in the spring of 1918. Mm -hmm. uh, New York, after my book came out, uh, uh, an epidemiologist named Don Olson looked carefully at New York and discovered they did have a spring wave. Chicago had a spring wave, but we don't, it, it was, the spring wave was actually much milder. It was so, the virus itself was different. It uh, apparently became much more lethal. The second wave was widespread worldwide, almost simultaneously, despite the lack of airplane travel, and uh, you know, very lethal. Wilson never made a public statement about it. Uh, again, his focus was entirely the war. You know, that second wave died away. And then the third wave came in late winter, 1919. He was in uh, Paris during the peace talks. Uh, it had a dramatic effect on him. One of the similarities between 1918 virus and, and SARS-CoV-2 is that it attacked pretty much every organ, uh, unlike other influenza viruses, and 
had pronounced neurological effects, which COVID-19 also has, uh, and could cause psychosis, uh, along with things like depression. And uh, it, everybody from Lloyd George, the British prime minister, to Herbert Hoover, who was also in Paris, uh, to the Erwin Ir Hoover, who was the White House butler, uh, mm -hmm. everybody commented on how Wilson's mind was affected dramatically, his ability to focus and, his, and so forth. And it seems to even have affected his position in the peace treaty. Uh, it's amazing. Uh, let me ask you about the follow-up. Um, one of the things that's often seems to be taken almost as a truism, but I think it probably shouldn't be that, that disasters form ruptures and society learns tangible lessons. Think, thinking forward into the 1920s and 30s, can you point to specific lessons that were learned from that 1918 pandemic that actually reshaped the way public health worked or the way media worked? I mean, are there tangible things, not for today, but even just within those 10, 20 years after the great influence. I would largely disagree with your uh, premise. Uh, hmm. I don't know that, you know, within the narrow community of people who were dealing with it at the moment, the scientific community, yeah, sure, there was a lot of scientific progress that came out of it. But in terms of changes in society, I think it contributed to uh, uh, the roaring 20s to the attitude in the 20s, let's party now because we don't know what's going to happen. Uh, mm. You had not only, but it's hard to separate that from the war, which was one of the most pointless and deadliest wars in history. And again, in the virus itself also killed young people the same ages who were dying in, in combat. Uh, but in so, so I would I would not accept your premise on that. I don't see the the virus in terms of the larger society, with the exception of you know the hard to quantify or demonstrate the psychological impact. Uh, I don't think it changed anything. In fact, the National Institutes yeah. of Health was not created until 1928, when there was a resurgence of influenza. Uh, you would have thought maybe right after the pandemic, Congress might have done that, uh, but no. However, in 28, again, the virus came back, and uh, it was nothing like 1918. It was just a really bad seasonal flu, but it was bad enough that it reminded people, and they created the National Institutes of Health. Uh, I don't know what's going to come out of COVID-19. You know, you would expect a much greater investment in public health and you would expect a lot more investment in virology. But the reality is that every government in the world is going to be so fiscally strapped. I don't know where the money's gonna come from for that investment. You know, maybe initially, but will it be sustained? The George W. Bush administration created the national stockpile, including ventilators made a large investment in vaccine manufacturing technologies, 
did other things as part of the preparedness package. And a lot of those things eroded over time, um, including in the Obama administration. They used up some things uh, during 2009 and lesser to much lesser extent during Ebola, uh, and they weren't replaced. And of course, Trump ignored that entirely and even even eliminated is you know you've heard a thousand times you know that national security council entity uh focusing on global health so you know how long a memory we have remains to be seen it's it is amazing to me though that you published the book and uh it obviously did move the needle in terms of some public officials paying attention to the possibility for the pandemic being something that could once again strike America and be and be absolutely devastating. And and you you became in the two thousands a public figure as a historian. I I wonder, could you talk about that a little bit? And and I ask that in part because we have a lot of historians and social scientists who listen to COVID calls and I feel like there's a general sense people want to see their research shape public policy. And I don't think anybody believes that's linear, but they do want to be part of the national discussion. Um, can you talk a little bit about that sort of moment of awakening where you realized your book was, was starting to get the attention of policymakers? Well, uh, Tommy Thompson on September 11th, he was, you know, former governor of Wisconsin, in fact, he's just now interim uh, head of the University of Wisconsin system. Uh, but he was the first secretary of HHS under Bush. On September 11th, 2001, he was actually in a meeting on pandemic influenza, thought it was so important, he was initially reluctant to leave that meeting. So he had that interest early on. Uh, my book didn't come out until 2004. And, uh, excuse me. And, you know, uh, he had left by then. Mike Levitt was secretary of HHS, but an assistant secretary named Stuart Simonson, who is now assistant director general of WHO, uh, I guess had been alerted to the issue maybe by Thompson. He read my book, took it to Mike Levitt, then the uh, secretary, Levitt read it, took it to Bush, and and... Bush actually read Rising Tide earlier and sent me a note about it before he was president. Uh, and he took it very, very seriously uh, and made it a very high priority of the administration uh, to prepare for pandemic. But you've got to remember, it wasn't just the book. Uh, you had SARS in 2003. Uh, you know, then you had so-called bird flu H5N1, which scared the bejesus out of the public health community, you know, 40% case mortality. Uh, you know, if that influenza virus had ever acquired, and still could, the ability to pass between people easily, then you have a highly lethal pandemic. You have a something that would dwarf COVID-19. So that was a context uh, a very important context. It wasn't by any means just the book. But I did get involved in the uh, 
you know, sort of the conceptualizing of a pandemic preparedness plan and non-pharmaceutical interventions and so forth, uh, you know, in, in the Bush administration. Uh, and for me, that was, you know, fun, frankly. I mean, it's intellectually challenging. And as you say, you like to have some impact. And uh, I followed politics closely. My first book was on politics. Actually, I kind of got disgusted with politicians and decided I didn't want to write about it anymore. And that's when I went to history, but you're still writing about politics. Uh, right. So, you know, both intellectually challenging and fun. And, you know, I've, I've stayed with it for the, you know, roughly the last, well, more than 20 years since I started the book. Uh, but, in the, you know, I know many of the figures involved in, in the policy and public health decisions. The, one of the challenge, one of the challenges always, I guess, is that the time, um, the different ways that people think about time, historians can think about time over very long stretches and find useful connections and causalities. Policymakers don't usually have the luxury of talking much about things that happened a hundred years ago or a hundred years in the future. That must have made for some interesting discussions in those days in which you've got policy right after 9-11 and Katrina and you're in the room talking with people trying to draw lessons back from 1918 and 1919. That must have been quite quite interesting and challenging to talk about history in that way. Well, it was. Uh, you know, that was pretty dramatic. And I think, I mean, the events of 1918 were pretty dramatic. Uh, and the people in the room were were pretty serious, uh, whether they were politicians or not. You know, obviously Thompson and Levitt were both former governors. Uh, they wanted to do the right thing, and they did do the right thing, as, as did Bush on that issue. In fact, I remember being on a TV show with Levitt when Levitt, when one of the other people interviewing us said, well, come on, you know, Mr. Secretary, this isn't really about influenza, is it? You're trying to distract from Carl Rove. If you remember, that was right at the time Carl Rove turned out to leak the name of uh, Valerie Huplain. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, and there were some other things going on politically. And, you know, I actually jumped in and, and defended Levitt uh, not as effectively as I could have ever since I've been thinking well, the point that I should have made was the European Union was doing the same thing. But anyway, that's beside the point. Things you don't say haunt you forever. <laughs> uh, we've got a question in from uh, one of our listeners, Jorge Benavides. Interesting, again, sort of thinking about historical parallels and lessons, and he's asking whether or not um, given the economic situation we're facing right now, it's productive to think about COVID-19 in the context of the Great Depression as well, not just 1918. I wonder what you think about that. I think that would be a better context. I think the economic impact of 1918 is infinitely less than this one. Uh, again, because of duration, you know, it, it lasted in a particular community, community, six to 10 weeks, and then it was gone. There may have been a third wave, maybe not. Uh, and the economy came back pretty quickly. 
Uh, there was, without a doubt, a, a a recession, right, that which was certainly related to the pandemic. Uh, I probably don't have time looking at the clock to go into more details about it, but the recovery was fast. And I think the depression is a better analogy uh, for the economic situation we're in now uh, than the 1918 pandemic. Thank you for that question, Jorge. Um, to also ask you, we are almost up on time, but I'm gonna get a couple of quick questions here in as we're wrapping up. Um, wondering, um, this is kind of a historian's question. Uh, the sources, I'm curious, you know, right now as we're living through this pandemic, there are already efforts to try to do oral history and document collection. You know, you're a person who's really knows the archives of that great pandemic. What kind of sources did you rely on most to write that book? And, and I guess that sort of taps into this question, what should we be collecting right now? What, what should the archive of COVID-19 be so that we can draw useful lessons from it? Well, you know, the Rockefeller University archives, which are actually the American Philosophical Society in Philadelphia, uh, well, mm -hmm. of, of the scientists, the papers of the scientists are, are not at Rockefeller University's archives. Uh, there are, there is stuff there. Um, the Red Cross, which I was already familiar with, uh, their papers from having done the 1927 book, uh, that's in the National Archives. The uh, military records were all in the National Archives. Uh, you know, there was plenty to go through. I did not really look much for, except for the scientists, I, I didn't look for the personal tragedies of individuals. To be perfectly honest, I kind of, uh, I, I slipstreamed in on American experience for that. They were extremely generous. They had done a, a show on, on influenza before I started the book. And they gave me access to the full transcripts of all the interviews they had done with survivors. Uh, wow. And, and as did, uh, I wish I could remember his name. I'm embarrassed I can't, uh, in your area, uh, who had done some oral histories with, uh, in the Philadelphia and Camden area. Uh, he gave me complete access to all of his research. Uh, some, some people were very generous with that. And in terms of the personal stories, uh, the anecdotal stuff, that's, you know, I, as I say, I slipstreamed on that. In, in terms of today, there's so much, you know, it's, it, it's good to approach this. It'd be like a dog trying to bite a basketball. <laughs> How do you get into it? Uh, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. you know, there's just an extraordinary amount of material being documented, which of course is a good thing, uh, but it can drown you as well. You, you need to have a pretty clear vision of what you're trying to get at. And that comment from, from one of your listeners, yeah, I was there. <laughs> I was at, at the National Library of Medicine. Uh, yeah. So, uh, last question as we're wrapping up: uh, Are you going to write a book about these times, our times? Well, when this started, COVID times. 
Yeah, when this started, a lot of people did ask me about that. And I universally said no. Uh, you know, I'd written, I've written six books. Two of them were on disasters. I used to say, I may write a book that is a disaster, but I'm never going to write about one again. However, uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, I've largely changed my position and I, I think it's, I'm frankly likely to, uh, to write one on this with some reluctance, but probably will go forward. Well, I want to thank you for your time today, John Perry, and remind everybody you've been listening to COVID Calls. Tomorrow on COVID Calls, we'll be talking about the Democratic National Convention Week with Samantha Montano and Edison Francois. We're really looking forward to that. You can join us every weekday, 5 p.m. Eastern time uh, for COVID Calls. John Barry, uh, it's just wonderful to speak with you. A great hour and um, good luck with all your research and everything you're doing. I look forward to that next op-ed. Well, I don't know if I'll write another op-ed, but uh, thanks. And, you know, the internet allowed me to come back on <laughs> to say goodbye. And th thanks for having me on. Stay healthy, everybody. See you tomorrow at 5 o'clock. Bye-bye.